0: 1939, as uh, the Spanish Civil War was coming to a close, General Mola was making his final plans to attack Madrid. And someone asked him which one of his four columns would attack the city first. He responded now famously with the words, My fifth column is first. His hopes, you see, were pinned on the help of rebel Sympathizers living within the city walls. They were already at work behind loyalist lines, aiding his cause, preparing the way for the overthrow of Madrid. Since that time, the phrase, the fifth column, has come to be used worldwide to describe people who assist the enemy from within. Now, the biblical term for that thought or phrase is the word apostate. An apostate is someone who masquerades for a while within the city, so to speak, the, the, the church walls, but eventually comes out revealing they really didn't believe it all that well after all, and they deny Christ for the rest of their lives. John the Apostle wrote about them in 1 John 2, 19, where he describes them as he explains, They went out from us, but were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now, in light of our study of the Antichrist, I found it especially interesting that John will follow up that phrase with a phrase a few verses later Well, he will say this, I have not written to you, church, Because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So who is the liar but the one who denies Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, God in the flesh? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So John writes about those who have left the church. He writes about those apostates who deny the truth of Christ. He writes about those who say eventually, you know, we never did buy into all that stuff and we're out of here. And they deny the Lord with their lives from that point forward. Even worse, if there's something worse than somebody leaving as an apostate, are those apostates who deny the truth but remain in the church. They provide this fifth column. that They're masquerading... They're they're actually on the enemy's side. They're in league with him. They're preparing the way for falsehood and deception. They vote in church meetings. They serve on deacon boards. They may even be in the pulpit. They are the fifth column. They are shepherds, and those would be the worst of all then those in leadership who lead the sheep astray. This was Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders when he said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Why? Because from among your own selves, that is, within the assembly, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now the word for perverse, you might think of as some kind of immoral thing. It isn't. Diastrepho can be translated to simply Twist or distort. They say distorted things. They say twisted things. They, they sound right. They sound true until you think about it five or ten seconds later. They, but they are actually twisting the truth and distorting its meaning. As we've said before, they use the same terminology that we use, but they use a different dictionary. I agree with one author who wrote that it doesn't take much effort to see we live in a generation of surging apostasy. Paul wrote to Titus, These are they who've turned away from the truth, that is, they're defiled and unbelieving. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. See, these are the ones that Paul is warning the church of in every generation. This fifth column, from within, they collaborate with the enemy. They are watering down, perhaps, the gospel. Maybe that's their, their stick. Or they denigrate the mission of uh, the church into nothing more than let's just be offensive in our presentation, which means we never present the gospel because the gospel does offend. In fact, we'll just let everybody have the God of their own choice and you get to heaven in whichever way you want to get there. The world will finally, according to what John will reveal to us, finally be unified in one uh, global government, in one global economy, and as we're about to see, in, in one global religion. It will begin with the acceptance of every God and every religion. In fact, the inclusive religion will be the -the state-of-the-art way. And anybody that doesn't believe that would be some exclusive prude who really isn't very tolerant. And who might that be? Well, we gather today in this room. That's who we are. That's who they are. Everyone will have a God in this day and every God will be validated. However, halfway through the tribulation, we're going to see the happy days of every God will do will morph into only one God and that God will be the Antichrist and you will either worship him or die. Those who, of course have been raptured, won't go through this. Those who've come to faith in Christ after the rapture will have to make that significant decision of whether or not they'll wear the mark of the beast. And uh, we'll get there in our next session. This is uh, the challenging day, which I believe may very well be setting up for the emergence of the Antichrist, marked in every generation, of course, by many Antichrists. John the Apostle wrote, "...of the spirit of Antichrist... Which is among you even now. And the spirit of Antichrist will especially hate the exclusive claim of Christ. Of whom the Bible says there is salvation in no one else. How exclusive is that? There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This was the message of the first century church, the true church. This is the message of the 21st century church. It was as unwelcomed then as it is unwelcomed now. And it will be the death sentence for those who've come to faith in the tribulation who dare to believe it. Now before we look at how the Antichrist operates in his one world religion, I believe it's absolutely necessary for the church to be warned In this dispensation about what John wrote exists even now. Even in our culture now. Even in the midst, even behind the walls of the church. Now the New Testament clearly identifies the fifth column inside the walls of the church with two predominant characteristics. First, they deny whatever truths of scripture they don't want to believe. And so they hack up Scripture. They'll divide a verse and throw half of it away and accept the other half. They'll, they'll throw away books of the Bible. It doesn't matter. If they don't like it, they don't want to believe it, they're not going to accept it. And they'll deny it. Secondly, they practice whatever behavior they want to practice. And God would surely not be in the way of whatever we want to practice because God wants us to be happy. The apostate church, you remember, already revealed to us those churches on the line. They were called to repent, but they were real close To having their candlesticks snuffed out, that is their testimony of the gospel in Revelation 2 and 3. You remember, several of them were were admitting, uh, they were accepting, they were were accommodating uh, sinful, immoral behavior. In fact, several of the seven churches that received these letters were involved in open immorality. Licentiousness was being taught to the congregation in the name of grace. So the church then in our generation, could easily, as we compare ourselves to them, be categorized as apostate or nearly apostate or the general flow being apostate. All we have to do is observe the distinction or the lack of among professing believers. Sin is condoned. Sin is endorsed. Whatever lifestyle you want to have, whatever behavior you want to act out, whatever doctrine you want to believe, whatever you want to toss out, whatever you think that God may want you to believe in the Bible, all of that, the church doesn't seem to be disturbed one of our shepherd seminary graduates told me some time ago that he arrived at his new church beautiful building, congregation waiting for him first weekend he got a phone call on Friday night before he was to preach his first sermon at this now his first church the phone call was from a man outside the church that was trying to reconcile with his wife who was inside the church and he was in the midst of writing a letter that he hoped would appeal to her heart And he wanted the pastor to meet with him. He felt he was close and he wanted to get the words right. And so he asked if the pastor would meet with him. And he was so excited, he told me, because my first weekend I'm going to get to be involved in the reconciliation of a a marriage. When he met with the man later that, that night, he realized that it wasn't quite what he thought. In fact, he realized how deeply troubling the situation was. Evidently, his wife wasn't interested in reconciling with him at all. In fact, she had already moved in and was living with another man who was also attending that same church. And everybody evidently in the church knew about it. Small church. The pastor also came to find out that the man she was involved in was actually a leader in that church. In fact, he would discover that this man was the chairman of the pastoral search committee that had called him to pastor. And that was his first weekend. I didn't ask him if he changed his text... But in every mainline denomination, the facts are in and well-known. Whether we want to deny it or not, the facts of the evangelical church are in. It doesn't seem troubled that abortion is as commonplace inside the church as outside. That fornication is as expected between single adults inside the church as outside. That pornography is as rampant inside the church as outside. Divorce as commonplace. Greed as rampant. Gossip as Unbridled. Homosexuality, as condoned and even encouraged, uh, adulterers are moving unrepentantly and unchallenged among the assembly. They who profess to know God deny Him with their deeds. That's apostate behavior. There is apostate belief, which is the second, of course, characteristic. The church at large, comparing itself to apostate belief, would have to admit it is throwing overboard historic. Biblical pre- and post-reformation doctrine which is biblical it is now considered intolerant and out of date doctrine is not overtly denied as much as it is discreetly distorted twisted ever so slightly at times redefined no apostate would ever probably I don't think get up in an evangelical church and announce I deny Jesus Christ from here on out No, but what he will do is deny that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That the resurrection doesn't have to be literal. That the Bible doesn't have to be infallible. That hell doesn't have to be a real place. The apostate will not deny that Christ exists, but he will deny that Christ is exclusively God our Savior. The emergent church movement which has grown in popularity over the last four years in some circles, just another apostate movement of church leaders who deny, among other historic doctrines, the necessity of faith in Christ alone for salvation. One whose writings formed much of the foundation of the emergent church, a Catholic priest by the name of Henry Nguyen, who died a few years ago, put his belief in these rather deceptive terms. Listen carefully. He said this, and I quote, I personally believe... That while Jesus came to open the door to God's house, all human beings can walk through that door whether they know about Jesus or not. Today I see it as my calling to help every person claim his or her own way to God. No wonder he was a bestseller. This doctrine is now fully accepted by the average American Christian and Christian congregation. In fact, it is entrenched in every mainstream Protestant denomination of our generation. Brian McLaren, who was listed as one of Time Magazine's most influential 25 evangelical leaders, wrote this rather twisted statement. wrote a lot of them. This one in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy. That's code word for everybody gets in. See how generous we are. Here's one statement he made. Quote, I don't believe making disciples equals making adherence to Christianity. It may be advisable in many circumstances to help people become followers of Jesus and remain within their Buddhist or Hindu contexts. In other words, Christians can remain Hindu. They're just going to be better Hindus and Buddhists. By the way, this is the same distorted message popularized by quote-unquote people of faith. Out in our community and culture that you've probably been hearing about all our life, all your life. And I've certainly been hearing about it. And the tide is simply growing. And the undertow of this deception is actually pulling more and more people into it. Uh, one uh, person who was admired by our community at large is Mother Teresa. She died a few years ago. And she was admired, and rightly so by the way, for her clinic. And her medical uh, and charitable work providing safe Clean medical aid to the terminally sick and dying in India, especially with her with her main clinic in Calcutta. I I visited that clinic and I walked through it. It amazes me because as I walk through it, of course, you see people sitting on very clean cots, but you're not allowed to share the gospel with them. And she, in one interview, said, and I quote her: "If in coming face to face with God, we accept Him in our lives." Then we become a better Hindu, a better Muslim, a better Catholic, a better whatever we are. What God is in your mind, you must accept. End quote. Frankly, it has always amazed me to hear evangelical leaders quote her and others as if they are true believers. But how empty of hope is that? Listen, we don't want a God of our own mind. We We don't want to accept any God we've invented. In fact, whatever we invent is probably flawed and corrupted. It will be a God after our own image. And what good is that God? The truth is, the God who is revealed in Scripture is a God we could never invent. We cannot comprehend. And this one historic doctrine of saving faith in Christ alone is ever twisted by people in spiritual communities, pseudo-spiritual leaders who say, as one emergent leader said recently with rather clever deception, listen carefully to this quote, although I believe in Jesus as my personal savior, it'd be good if he put a period there, but he didn't, although I believe in Jesus as my personal savior, I am not a Christian for that reason. I am a Christian because I believe that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. And that is published in a book by Zondervan, and you can buy it at your Christian bookstore. Jesus Christ had a very different message. Yes, the invitation to Christ is universal. But he didn't say it would be popular. In fact, he didn't say it would be heavily populated. And it certainly wasn't inclusive. And any God will not do. In fact, he said on one occasion that most people are not heading toward heaven, they're heading toward hell. And he put it in this terminology. He said, broad is the way that leads to where? Destruction. Destruction. And many there be that find it. That broad, wide, heavily populated path is leading in the wrong direction. In other words, everybody doesn't get to God. Even if a teacher named McLaren does say it in a best-selling book, sold at your Christian bookstore. If ever we needed to be alerted, it is today. A woman in our church sent me an email. She and her husband started attending Colonial. and They've been here now for a couple of months. She said they'd left another church in our county. She didn't tell me the name of it, which is good. In her Bible study group... A discussion, she wrote, had taken place on the subject of pluralism, which is this subject of many paths lead to God. Islam, Hinduism, whatever. And she wrote, it was all accepted by them in the group. She said that she spoke up, and she asked about John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, which is rather exclusive, not inclusive. And no one agreed with her except one lady who spoke up and said, yeah, I, I, I believe that too. So she approached a leader in her church in fact her Sunday school teacher and found out that her Sunday school teacher believed it too. Pluralism. In fact her teacher told her that John fourteen six had many interpretations. I love it when they say that. <laughs> it's code for truth can be many things whatever you want it to be. The teacher said that has many interpretations and then told her What you need to do is talk to a Hebrew scholar to explain that it doesn't actually exclude Islam or Hinduism. And I found that very interesting. The teacher would send her to a Hebrew scholar since it wasn't written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek, but that's a minor point, I guess. Her teacher went on to tell her that John 14 was the only place the Bible stated Jesus was the only path to God. There is salvation in no one else. Acts 4. So now you've got at least another book. She writes, It seemed that many key leaders in our church quietly supported this view of many paths to God. Well, I have one word to say to that dear woman and her husband. Welcome. Welcome here. And in that church and any church that denies the singular atonement of Christ for salvation, we call it sola fide. We discover that in our view of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone for faith and practice. That church may turn the lights on, it might have climate control, there may be pews and a robe choir, but it is dead. It's dead. The Spirit of God will not bless and not be a part of an assembly that denies the historic truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Period. I got to finish this introduction. (laughs) This is heavy on my heart. In fact, I wanted to get to the entire paragraph in Revelation 13. But let me just say a few more words because I'm not done yet. I, I think this is so needed today. The closer we move to the end of the church age, the more, the plethora of false teachers there will be. Christ warned of it. He said there, there are going to be many false teachers, many antichrists, many people against Christ. And it will lead to the introduction of the antichrist and the final deceiving prophet, spiritual leader, preacher, Who will endorse the Antichrist? I'll introduce him to you in a minute. And and in a matter of 42 months, the world will be worshiping the Antichrist. You say, how in the world could that happen so quickly? Because there's a fifth column already at work. And the true church is raptured. And all that's left are people that think there are many gods anyway. And they're ready for it. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They they, they use what seems to be correct terminology, but then they twist it. They distort it. Listen, how come it's easy to deceive people? You ever wondered that? How come it's going to be so easy? How come these guys are going to get away with it? How come there are churches around our country and everywhere who who are just nodding their heads and reading the books and saying, well, that sounds good to me? Well, for one thing, Satan knows the human heart was created to worship. And wherever there's a void, he'll fill it with a lie. Everybody has faith in something, right? Everybody believes in something. Even those who say they don't believe in anything are exercising faith that there is nothing in which to believe, right? Well, get ready. The day is approaching when the human race will be deceived by a preacher who will turn the heart of the world to worship the Antichrist. Let's be introduced to him now. Verse 11 where we left off at Revelation chapter 13. Then I saw. It's John's way of saying I have a new vision. This is a new vision from God. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now you might notice if you look up at verse 1. There is a beast mentioned here. The first beast. That's the Antichrist. We've studied that section already. And he came up out of the sea. You look in verse 1, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Probably a reference to the Mediterranean since the Antichrist will come from the revived Roman Empire surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. The second beast, now down in verse 11, is called later in Revelation 19, the false prophet or the false preacher. And and he, John says, I saw him coming up out of the, the earth. Interesting to me. The word translated earth can be simply translated land. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 10, we read of the land of Judah. In verse 20 of Matthew, chapter 2, we read of the land of Israel. This has led some uh, Bible um, uh, teachers, evangelical scholars, to propose that the false prophet will be Jewish. He's going to come up out of the land. Now, you might say, oh, no. And, and, you know, we're not going to go to the wall on this, but you might immediately say there's no way a Jewish man would ever promote a one-world religion that would accept Buddhists and Muslims and Christians. Well, I happen to have in my study a copy of an interview that somebody sent me last month with a leading rabbi in Israel, a chief rabbi, who said, and I quote him, It is my dream to create a united religious nation. And I couldn't help but think of Revelation chapter 13. He went on to explain that since Abraham is the father of of all three major monotheistic religions embraced by the majority of the human population uh, that's Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. That that connection, the fact that we all go back to Abraham, well, let's use Abraham then. Let's not worry about Christ. Let's talk about Abraham and let our connection to Abraham be the foundation for dialogue and a united world religion. That's a Jewish man speaking, a rabbi. But you're probably thinking there's no way in the world a Muslim is ever going to follow a Jew. Well, I just happened to get this week a journal I subscribed to called The Friends of Israel. And in this month's edition, they had a big splash, one page, a, a, a picture of the king of Saudi Arabia. And then the article, which I couldn't help but believe uh, fit well within this movement, which may be setting the stage, who knows, even in our generation, for the coming one world religion. And this king of Saudi Arabia, of course, he's a devout Muslim. And that, that nation is, I guess you could call them the most intolerant nation on the earth. You're either Muslim or, or 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 you don't breathe, you're dead. Well, he had a, a conference in Spain. He convened. That conference was claimed to be an historic conference. Historic, for one thing, because it was a conference on religious inclusivism. And Muslims normally aren't at those conferences, right? Well, they were here. It was led off by this king who got up and spoke on the need to connect and to be in unity. There at this meeting were were Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Zoroastrians. By the way, those are not people who follow Zoro, in case you were wondering. They are a smaller sect of monotheists who believe in an uncreated God named Mazda. That's right. Those of you that drive a Mazda are in deep trouble. Just thought you'd like to know. Well, 300 religious leaders convened in Spain and this Muslim king got up and said this, and I quote, We all believe in one God who sent messengers for the good of humanity in this world and the hereafter, end quote. In other words, we ought to find common ground in our monotheism and in the name of monotheistic unity, let's just kind of combine. Get along. John records here in chapter 13 the rise of a powerful, demonically inspired preacher, prophet, who will rise with pseudo spiritual leadership. Notice John's further vision. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon, a reference to two animals. The metaphor here could be the lamb, a reference to him counterfeiting Christ, the lamb. I'm not so sure that's it. We know the Antichrist will pull that off. He will be the the pseudo lamb, the anti lamb, the Antichrist. I think this is probably language that takes the reader back to Matthew 7, where Jesus Christ alerted his audience saying, Listen, there are going to be many false teachers who are going to come to you, and they're going to be dressed in lamb's wool, or lamb's clothing, so to speak. They're going to be dressed in wool. That's part of their disguise. They're dressed as harmless sheep. But underneath, he says, they are ravenous wolves and they are going to rip you apart. Now think of it. This is part of the deception. Nobody's afraid of a lamb. Lambs don't scare people. They're innocent. They're, they're, They're harmless. They're gentle. And throughout Scripture... They are ceremonially clean. This man is going to have all the religious boxes checked. He's going to be the perfect gentleman. But then, note, John adds here that he he spoke as a dragon. That ties him to the language of Satan. Throughout this expose, Satan is called the dragon. So he looks like a, like a lamb, he's innocent, he's harmless, he's smooth, he's eloquent, but when he speaks, he reveals his partnership with the enemy, Satan. He'll work like no fifth column ever worked behind the scenes, ultimately aiding the one who will destroy billions of people who surrender to this false Messiah. And I thought, you know, false prophets are like that, aren't they? They often appear meek and mild, and harmless and positive and kind. They are the perfect gentlemen. They offer hope and solutions to the problems troubling men and women, yet they are the voices of hell, whether they realize it or not. In fact, Matthew 7 tells us some are not even going to realize it until they stand before Christ and he says, I really never knew you. When they speak, they speak the words of Satan, the false prophet. Under his power will come like a lamb speaking false, deceptive words of comfort. He's going to promise the suffering, tormented human race, experiencing the wrath of God that all will be well. One scholar, F.F. Bruce, called him the minister of propaganda. In reality, he is in partnership with the devil himself. I want you to underscore not only his partnership, but his passion. Look at verse twelve. This is the anti-spirits' passion. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now, there are some believe that he is the antichrist. Uh, the text clearly indicates he's exercising the authority of the antichrist in the presence of the antichrist. These are two separate individuals. Others believe that this false prophet is is not really a man. He's just an ideology. He's, maybe he's a false religion of some sort or, or maybe he's an institution. The trouble with that is that you don't have institutions. You don't have ideologies cast into hell. Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 reveals the terrifying finality that the beast and this prophet will have. Let me read you what he says. The beast is seized along with a false prophet. "...who performs signs in his presence, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone." So this is their end. But for a a short space of time, the false prophet will act with great passion. He's going to act with this primary objective to accomplish what? Look at verse 12 again. "...and he makes the earth, and those who dwell in it..." That is, the earth dwellers is a consistent reference to unbelievers... He will make the earth dwellers worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. A reference to the Antichrist. Simply put, then his passion is to to preach, to prophesy about a one world religion and why that makes sense. And he will then coalesce the voice of humanity that will ultimately exalt the Antichrist and worship him. He will literally function as one who seeks to glorify The son of perdition. You see the false trinity in here? You see the anti-trinity represented in these three? The dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet? Listen to these contrasting descriptions we're given in the Bible. The Holy Spirit exalts Jesus Christ. John 15. The anti-spirit, or the false prophet, exalts the antichrist. The Holy Spirit reveals divine revelation gives us illumines, divine revelation, John 16, 13. The anti-spirit is an instrument of satanic revelation. The Holy Spirit seals the believer to God forever, 1 John 3. The anti-spirit will also seal their followers forever, bringing about their doom. The Holy Spirit builds up the body of Christ, John 7, 37. The anti-spirit will build up those who follow after Antichrist. The Holy Spirit enlightens mankind with God's truth, John fourteen seventeen. The anti-spirit will deceive mankind with Satan's lie. So just as Satan will counterfeit God the Father, the Antichrist will counterfeit God the Son, the false prophet will counterfeit the Holy Spirit. You have this anti-counterfeit trinity. Satan, the first person, acts as... God the Father, so to speak, in in having this plan and scheme. The second person, the son of perdition, which carries out, as it were, his father's scheme. And the third person, the anti-spirit who seeks to glorify the son of perdition, bringing worship, sealing those followers forever. And listen, the anti-trinity is going to sound a lot like the deceivers of every generation. And they are in our generation. And I've quoted from some of them already. Rob Bell, another emergent church leader, interviewed in a supposed evangelical magazine. And that interview, Bell said, listen to this. And I quote him. The church has preached horrible messages about being left behind and that this place is going to burn. These are toxic messages. Messages that are against the teaching of Scripture. I wondered how long it had been since he read 2 Peter 3 about the earth being burned and and, uh, those apart from Christ being doomed. But he said this. These messages are against the teaching of Scripture which states we are connected to God. We are connected to the earth. We are connected to each other. Your relationship with God is tied into your relationship with the soil. And then he says, go back to Genesis. So I did. (laughs) In Genesis, we discover the original sin. So that man is no longer connected to God. But in deep trouble, We, we saw mankind's spiritual death through disobedience Connection is broken, but we saw God's initiative as he took the lives of two innocent animals and robed Adam and Eve with their skins, thus picturing blood atonement and the fulfillment of the coming final sacrifice for us, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis, the suffering Messiah who will crush the serpent's head in final victory. That's what you find in Genesis. In Genesis, we watch a world judged through a flood with those left out of the ark. That sounds a lot like left behind to me, or at least the first one, the original one. Go back to Genesis, and you have the introduction of Satan and sin and atonement and grace and the promise of a coming Messiah. Listen, your relationship to God today, my friend, if you have one, is not tied to the soil. It is tied to a savior and he's your only hope. And anybody who tells you otherwise is a false teacher who speaks the dragon's language of lies. The fifth column, unbelievers within the church who promote unity at the expense of truth, who cast their vote to make the church more tolerant of those who disbelieve the scriptures, However, the religious unity the world is clamoring for, we have. Unity around truth is what we enjoy and experience. What they're clamoring after, according to Revelation, as we will even see further in another study, it will be trivial, it will be superficial, it will be self-promoting, it will, it will be flawed, and most importantly, it will be temporary. It will last 42 months. And then lead straight to the gates of hell forever. But an assembly committed to the truth of God's word, the truth of God's person, revealed in the scriptures, can can be that body of people that enjoy the unity of heart and the the unity of purpose and the unity of true passion and love, not only in this assembly, but between assemblies of like faith, who also believe in the singular atoning work of Jesus Christ and this infallible book and the record of scripture which gives to us even the end of the age. We're actually out of time, but I want to close with an illustration of gracious unity based on a common confession of truth. So why don't you go ahead and pack your things. I received this week a very, very gracious letter from Pastor Gregory and the Alliance Church here in town Many of you know we worked together at the recent K.E.O. Memorial and such a delight to to combine the efforts of our churches, our choirs, some 300, 350 volunteers. We wanted to see the gospel promoted through the life and testimony of this wonderful believer. And we knew the world would be watching in a unique way. As an addendum, by the way, when I walked down the hallway um, before the memorial, I was walking beside the basketball team that had just come in the girls basketball team and uh and was so glad they were here and come to here and i gotta tell you that was kind of interesting because as i was walking i realized i came up to right about here most of them and i asked if i could scoot through you mind if i could scoot through and they fortunately said yes so i came up and got up here on the platform and i was handed a, a, a flyer that i thought nc state had produced and so i i didn't keep it um Although I'm a rabid state fan, I don't want you to misunderstand me, but I didn't know we produced it, and it was the testimony of K.L. On one side, on the back side, it was her testimony. NC State contacted our communications department this week and said, we want to have 10,000 copies of that to distribute. And so we said, are you paying for it? And they said, yes, and we agreed. (laughs) I mean, you know, we're all for the gospel, right? So at any rate... Our, our our leader, our communications department leader wisely said we'll do that, we'll allow that if you print both sides. And they agreed. So no telling who will further hear the testimony of this woman. But it was such a joy to, to, to work with this church. I went over to this pastor's office as we talked about the service and how to do it and and looked at his library. His library looked just like mine. <laughs> Same books. So I couldn't steal any of his because I've already got him. <laughs> same doctrines. We just kind of check boxes. Do you believe this? You know, when you guys get together, you talk about it, you know, which fan you are and what about Kurt Warner. When we preachers get together, we say, what translation do you use? <laughs> what do you believe about this or that? And he just checked all the boxes. Same, same doctrinal stand for Christ. Delight to meet him. Let me give you an illustration of unity based on the truth of Scripture. He wrote me an email this week, and with it, attached a letter to you. And uh, I think it will encourage you and serve as an illustration of true unity, not at the expense of truth, but because of the truth we believe in Christ. So let me read it to you as we wrap it up. He writes, I have reflected a bit on what enabled our congregations to minister together so well. I've tried to crystallize my thoughts, and here's what I've come up with so far. First, we share a common belief in the trustworthiness, authority and sufficiency of holy scripture. We are persuaded, we are called to strive to live by every word our God speaks. We prayerfully depend on Christ to sanctify us by his truth. Thank you for loving the word of God and the god of the word as you minister to us and alongside us. Secondly, we share a common conviction that the gospel is powerful to save. The gospel we love and herald is not a rag bag full of human speculations and hearsay hopes. It is of divine origin. God alone planned, promised, and provided the gospel, the only saving message in existence. Thank you for your faithfulness to the good news that forgiveness and eternal hope are ours only through Christ our Redeemer and Lord. I like this guy. (laughs) Third... We share a common devotion to the fellowship of believers. How sweet is the taste of the communion of the saints. Our choir and congregation have not stopped talking about the kindness, generosity, and glad-hearted serving spirit of the saints at Colonial. Thank you for your overflowing love for the people of Christ. Finally, we share the conviction that our supreme purpose is to glorify God. And it was a joy to serve the cause of God's glory with you. With much gratitude, Pastor Mitchell Gregory, Cary Alliance Church, Cary, North Carolina. not that great? Friends, this is the basis of true, joyful, religious harmony. It is true religion. It is based on our objective truth revealed in Scripture. It is built up in Christ our Lord. We both, as congregations, look to. We serve, we love. And one day for all those who truly believe in the atonement of Christ... And all of these critical doctrines as espoused in the scriptures, we will all one day gather in final unity, celebrating our Lord together. So in the meantime, no, you're not alone. And we as an assembly are not alone. The gospel is being being preached. And there are fellow brothers and sisters who are living it out as we are challenged to live it out too. So let's leave here with that in mind. In the grace of God.